Shaktivenu, which is normally sung on the saddest day of the year, and this is a sad time in the world. Hashivenu means turn us back, O Lord, turn us back to you, and we will turn, we will return and renew our days with you, O Lord. Hashivenu. Hashivenu, Adonai Elecha, Venashuva, Venashuva, Hadish, Hadish, Yamenu. Our next piece comes from the American Sufi tradition, which is sort of an ecumenical form of Islam, much like Unitarian Universalism draws on teachings of many, many traditions. American Sufis draw on the teachings of many traditions. Yahadi Allah means, O divine path of guidance, God. Ya Nuri Allah, O divine light, is God. Ishkala Mabud Lila. God is the divine conjunction of love, lover, and beloved. Yahadi Allah, Yanuri Allah, Ishkala. Allah, Ishkala. 
And for the final song of the gathering music, we're going to share an American folk gospel waltz called If Every Woman in the World Had Her Mind Set on Freedom. And we're going to add in some extra pronouns. You'll see, um, what's the number in the hymnal, Lydia? Pardon me? Do you know the number in the hymnal? Oh, I forgot to write it down. 1026, if you'd like to sing along. Um, so this is very binary language. If every woman in the world, if every man in the world, we're going to throw in woman, sibling, cousin, man, neighbor, everyone. So sing whatever you want. In those moments, we might be singing different words, and it's perfectly fine.
we must answer this question. What will we do with our gifts? <coughs> Choose to bless the world. The choice to bless the world is more than an act of will. It is an act of recognition, a confession of surprise, a grateful acknowledgement that in the midst of a broken world, unspeakable beauty, grace, and mystery abide. Those are the words of Reverend Rebecca Parker. And we kindle this chalice, remembering our history of blessing the world and our ability to continue to be surprised. Blessed be. I invite you to rise and body your spirit and join us. Our opening song, you see the title, Peace, Salam, Shalom. Those are the words that you sing over and over. I even have the t-shirt. <laughs> this is a song that was written by Pat Humphreys and Sandy Okato of Emma's Revolution. They were in New York City on 9-11, and when they saw how the United States government began persecuting American Muslims, they thought that we should have peace for everybody. So we think that this is still important. So your part goes like this. Peace, salam, shalom. Peace, salam, shalom. Peace, salam, shalom. Peace, salam, shalom. That's it. Peace, salam, shalom. 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 We believe in peace. We believe in peace. We believe in peace. We believe in peace. We will work for peace. I'm your worship leader, Kristen Satterley, and I'm so pleased to say hello to each of you today on this chilly, damp morning. Um, I was so surprised by the weather this morning, I forgot my car had a defroster that might help with that weird haze on the windshield. Um, I was a little late today because I was like, how do I get this off? Whoever and wherever you are in the physical or Zoom sanctuary or the family room or the social hall, we are so glad you are here today in this congregation connected by love. Take a moment to notice the people near you 
or far away and the energy that swirls between and among us. At this service, our congregation is not just here in the sanctuary, but throughout New Mexico and even further than that. So if it, take, if it helps any, briefly close your eyes so you can see of those people as well. A special hello to our small folks. Thanks for bringing your families this morning. We have special spaces for you, a playground right down here with the best view in the house and a soft rug and toys, an activity table in the back and a family room across the hall. Wherever you want to be, including at home in your pajamas, Zoom friends, we are happy you are with us today. We are one people of many beliefs, many origins, sexualities, and genders. We bring our holy, sacred, whole selves into this moment, beloved for who we are. All are welcome here. and minds for some meditation and prayer. Yes, resettling, just like that. Noticing where you're holding on to some kind of tension or a feeling from earlier, maybe. See if we can soften a little bit. the space you're in and the moment you're in, black or white on the wall, tree forms, casting shadows on the blinds, soft seat, gentle light. Jess Reynolds writes, on my worst days, it is gravity I'm most grateful for. The way the earth pulls at me from her core, yearns for me, keeps me pressed tightly against her surface. Feel yourself being drawn toward the earth just now. That seat is a counterpressure. Jess Reynolds continues, when my own core is hollowed out, when I have no more mass than a leaf dead on a branch, still this is enough for the earth to find me. She reaches for what little I have and says, stay. Every meditation I have ever done begins by asking me to ground myself. This is not so much an action as it is inaction. Surrender a voluntary abandonment of my own edges and tidy packaging. Sit with me now, they write. Press the soles of your feet back into the ground you sprang from. Feel the weight of your body and know that it is glorious. You are born of soil and sun and all the heaviness of the earth is a call to you. The earth is reaching for you. Reach back. Reach back. We continue in silence. 
The poetry for this piece was written by Samir Badri, a Muslim man. And he sought out a Jewish composer, Ted Warmband, to write the music for a peace rally in California many years ago. Da'una na'ish, let us live in peace. Da'una na'ish bi salam. Da'una na'ish bi aman. Let us live in inner peace. Da'una na'ish alam. Let us weave our dreams together. Da'una na'mut bi salam. Let us even die in peace. Dauna naish up the people of Israel and Palestine. We lift up all who are grieving, all who are captive, all who are displaced, and all who are unsafe there and around the world. We pray for peace. We pray for an end to violence, but not only the end to violence. We pray for the peace of wholeness, of repair, of equity, of thriving. 
those are in your hearts this morning. I invite you to call those people and places to mind now and to speak their names or write them in the chat box as the chime rings so that we can hold them with you. up to the great powers of healing and celebration and renewal known by many names. Tomorrow is the International Transgender Day of Remembrance. Here is a prayer by Sunshine Jeremiah Wolf. On this Transgender Day of Remembrance, we remember those who have been murdered for being who they are those who face violence on a daily basis, those who have lost loved ones, and those who worry for loved ones. May we come to a time when we cease to shame children around gender roles and expression, where we allow for freedom and exploration of identity and expression, and to a world that operates from love, especially when things are difficult and confusing. May all of us who live with the threat of violence find support, strength, community, hope, and safety from violence. May it be so. Peace be with you. I invite you to join in singing with us on this next one. Olam chesed yibaneh. Build this world with peace. And when we get to the English part, I'll call out the words and you can join me. build this world from love.
Hi. How's your heart today? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, uh, it's a little nervous. It's been tender for a long time now. Mm. So maybe there's some fatigue there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. I yes. <laughs> similar. And I feel like that song also kind of captured how my heart feels, like the um, tenderness and then in the grief that we have. And then also there's so much beauty uh, around us and like little moments and love. And uh, so it's just, it's a lot. So you and I talked a lot about um, how to have a message about Israel and Palestine. And I'm hearing something. Okay, here's the other one. It's very loud. It's screeching a bit. We're getting there. We're going to get this right. This is an important conversation. It is, yeah. yeah. We've got some time. Do you want me to switch, Michael, to the handheld? Okay. Oh, yeah, it's this one. And how about me? Can I get that switch to the handheld or the other handheld too? Okay, you think this one's fixed? Okay, here it is again. That sounds better to me. Yeah? Okay, great. Okay. And are you on? Am I on? No, I'm not on. Okay. Am I on? <laughs> Am I on? I'm accustomed to public speaking. I'd like to share a few words about my childhood. Say, oh. <laughs> All right, sounds like I'm on now. Right, folks in the back, can you hear me okay? okay? And this one's a little bit rustly as this one was earlier. Am I rustly? A little bit. Will it help if I take my glasses off, maybe? Try that. Well, that'll be fun for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have no idea what we're going to say. <laughs> this is it, right? Like, we're, this is what, this is life right now, is like talking about these tender things, these challenging things, and, and it's not going to be perfect, <laughs> right? So, as you and I talked about how to approach a message for this morning, we, one of the things we um, talked about was, you know, what did, where did we think the congregation was? And what we realized is um, we hadn't really heard very much from members of the congregation since this war broke out, which made us think it's really hard to talk about. It's just to talk about. Okay. We're going to go with the handheld. We're going to go with the handheld. <laughs> Powered on. There we go. Okay. Testing, testing, testing. This one is on too. Fantastic. I want to give it up for Michael McDonald oh and Nancy gosh. Shane for doing really yes. hard work. Our, our, uh, our sound person, Josh, called in sick this morning at 7.30 in the morning. Like a half hour before he's supposed to be in. So Michael and Nancy had to carry this all themselves. They're doing a spectacular job. So yes. thank you. How's RF6? Are we now we're on? Okay, I can hear it. We're good? Okay, yes. And as you can see, we threw a curveball at them with the entire platform setup, uh, which was planned, but they 
probably didn't know about that because they didn't expect to be running the show back there. So um, what I was going to say is it seems like what's true is that it's just really hard to talk about. And so we haven't been talking about it a whole lot yet. But I know I first realized that I was going to have to talk about it. Like one thing that really struck me was the day of the attack in Israel when some folks on the left responded with hooray or the immediate response was this didn't happen in a vacuum. And it was a huge slaughter. I mean, the biggest one since the Holocaust of Jews, mostly Jews, by what is explicitly an anti-Semitic group. And I felt it was very important that we have to talk about that. And also the fact that it's just impacted so many people, including right here in our congregation. And, I, and the folks I have heard from has been um, often folks who are scared, um, Jewish UUs who are scared for their lives or safety, um, and others who are just in a lot of pain around it. Why did you feel like it was important to talk about this? Oh, what's interesting, the, the last thing I did of my sabbatical was do a river trip down the Green River with six rabbis. Uh, and the trip started the day after October 7th, after the attack from um, Gaza into Israel. Uh, and the rabbis, of course, one of the, one of the people on the trip had flown in from Jerusalem for the trip. And they very quickly agreed that they would not talk about it for this whole trip because we we're going to be offline. Um, but it tells you how tender it is that even among a group of rabbis, they don't want to talk about it. Um, so, and I think, uh, just like my therapist says, the the we have to talk about the things we don't want to talk about. You know, the more we don't want to talk about it, the more important it is that we talk. So um, there's always been powerful emotions around this topic. Actually, I have a story. So I'll try to tell this quickly. In 2001, I was the chair of the board of a small congregation, UU congregation in Boston. And we were having a capital campaign. And the then president of the UUA, John Burens, agreed to help us out uh, by hosting a dinner in his house for our big donors. So the dinner comes. You know, We were all in his house. It's really lovely. I'm looking forward to celebrating the church and maybe making some, getting some big donations. John had just returned from Iraq, because this was the run-up to the Iraq war. And so the conversation turned to Iraq, then the Middle East, and then, of course, Israel and Palestine. And two people at that table, both doctors, were adamantly on either side of this issue, and they could not talk to each other. They only talked over each other, and the conversation got more and more heated until one of them actually threatened to leave the meeting. And I was trying to de-escalate. Uh, as best I could, but I could not keep them from talking about it. And I'm looking at, like, John, I'm like, dude, you're the president of the UUA. Can't you stop this? And he was just like, <laughs> anyways. Uh, so th the evening was really ruined. The, all the good vibes were definitely ruined, and we broke up early. And it's just, it's just proof that this, this has always been a very emotional and passionate topic for people. So. Yeah, that's, that like illustrates so much <laughs> about what's yeah. hard about it that even uh, such a leader as John Behrens was not able to figure out how to intervene. It is, it's hard. It's very emotional. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, we, we are all U.S. taxpayers, and the United States, well, not necessarily actually, I mean, uh, many of us are U taxpayers to the United States. Uh, the United States supports Israel to the tune of about $3.2 billion a year. And that is something that we are involved in as taxpayers. And for some folks, that may be very painful things. Other folks may really uh, support that policy decision. But we can't ignore the fact that we are engaged in this one way or another. 
Yeah. And we each come to it from a particular social location that's also informed by our personal histories, right? That's right. I think in all conversations, we got to recognize where we're coming from first, to be honest. You know, um, I have very dear Jewish friends as well as Muslim friends from my time in Afghanistan. Uh, I've been to war, and I've seen firsthand how people, innocent people, are often, always victimized by people making decisions far away from where the action is happening. Um, I've seen refugee camps. I understand the despair that they spawn. Um, I have a lot of cynicism around both Hamas and Likud, the party in Israel. And uh, I don't really, it's hard for me to see a moral high ground here um, from where I'm sitting. So, mm -hmm. But that's my, my blinders that I have for my social location. Yeah, well, blinders and also like lenses, right? Like both. Um, yeah, for me, you know, something that's really important about my social location is I'm in close community with a lot of Jewish people. And I've mentioned from time to time, uh, even in like sermons that were related, that my partner is a Jewish person. Um, my partner is preparing for rabbinical school. Um, we practice Judaism at home and have together for the last year and a half or so. Um, and I've been deepening in my own study and practice of Judaism. And pretty soon we'll officially become a UU who is Jewish as well. Um, and so that's part of my path right now. And that's my lens slash blinders, right? So those things are both true. And it keeps you very close to the pain, I think. It has been very, it has landed very personally. Yeah, yeah definitely. See that? Um, and there, that, and the, the, there are many UUs and Unitarian Universalist ministers who do that, who are both UU and another faith. Buddhism is very common, certainly Judaism too. Yep, Muslim UU ministers, Hindu UU ministers, we read from one of their books over the summer in our sermon series. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about uh, what makes it hard for you personally, like why so sticky? The, s the specifics of the conversation, I, I, here's, here's a good story. Uh, I, I, the sister of a good friend of mine a sister who I haven't heard from in probably 15 years or laid eyes on talk to, commented on a post on, I made on Facebook that was unrelated to the conflict. And she said, does your church have a stance on the conflict? And I said, no, First Unitarian doesn't have a specific stance, but the Unitarian Universalist Association has a stance, and I gave her the link to that. And this person who I had not seen or had any conversation with in so long, more than a decade, wrote back two words. Absolutely unacceptable. And, and so it goes. Like that, that's, that when that's, the dialogue immediately goes to that instead of curiosity. Um, I just, I hate, I hate this sort of like being pressured to be one place or another, people trying to manipulate me by guilt. Uh, I'm, I'm always like insufficiently pro-Palestine or insufficiently pro-Israel. Uh, I'm not a fan of ideological purity tests and projections. So. No? <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, I get that also. I'm also worried about being perceived as not caring enough about one side or the other or not being outraged enough on behalf of one side or the other. I am afraid to harm my beloveds, like people that are close to me for whom this is also such a sensitive thing. And to be really honest, I am also getting really nervous about the targets on my own back. I am a woman leader of a liberal congregation who's queer, right? 
who's uh, got a non-binary partner who speaks out about abortion, and now here I've just said that I'm also being affirmed in Judaism as well as this faith, and so I am nervous. It, that is just true. I wouldn't change any of it, but here we are. Uh, I think you, and you remind me, too, that uh, we often, we, we in these conversations, especially being like more heady as Unitarian Universalists, we rush past the feeling in a conversation and go right to the intellectual analysis. So the deep pain that people who connect to, Ju to Israel or Judaism felt on that day, like they needed to have that pain honored before we started saying, well, let me tell you about the history of Palestine and blah, 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 the British colonizers, you know. Like that's not, you know, that's not being honest about people, how people are feeling, you know. It's kind of unkind too. Yeah, it was a hard first response for sure. But uh, yet it is an important response to get to for sure. Yeah, and I, oh, I was going to talk about, um, and we actually, this, this congregation, uh, you know, we, we, when we were first starting out and we didn't have a church home back in the 50s, Congregation Albert let us use their space. So we, we might not be here if it wasn't for the generosity of that synagogue. That's right. And then today we ourselves share a campus with Menara Muslim community who we care very deeply about and are in many ways partners with as well. So we have important relationships. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that makes this really hard is, like, like I read a book before this sermon, and um, I've been reading about it over the years, but I am not remotely an expert. It's too big a topic, and, uh, like, it's frustrating to be put on the spot as an alleged expert just because I'm a religious professional. So I'm, I feel very humble in my conversations here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this 20-minute message... Well, we'll miss a lot of areas that folks will wish we had touched on, yeah, or focused on even. Right, right. And that's, and the, the, there's like our individual conversations and there's a public conversation which has its own challenges. Yeah. I think one of the challenges about that larger conversation in the public also is that, you know, being pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or being Zionist or anti-Zionist does not properly capture the nuance of thought that folks should have or do have, you know, on these issues. Um, it's not something that boils down easily to a label. And that's another reason I wanted to talk about it. So we're not going to be able to flesh it all out in a 20-minute talk. But we can lift up that black and white thinking is not helping get to peace. Like, that is not what's going to get us there. That's absolutely huge, yeah. And there's, su there's such power, uh, such you know, deep emotion behind these conversations when they happen publicly. There's a generational trauma that happened uh, because of the Holocaust. There's a generational trauma because of the explosions of Palestinians. It's called the, it's called the Nakba mm -hmm. uh, in 1948. I'm not equating those two events, just to be clear. But there has been a lot of hurt on all sides. Uh, and the scale of the suffering, just watching these horrible things unfold week after week now, you know, it's, um, it just, it really loads the conversation with a lot of, of heavy, heavy emotions. Yeah. And Folks might remember that back on October 1st, I preached about intergenerational trauma and like inherited trauma, ancestral trauma, and the way it can start to be mistaken for culture, right? Like the way that that can take shape as it gets handed down. So one thing about this whole situation in, in uh, Israel and Palestine is that it really matters where you start the story historically, right? So people who, who think of the story as starting in the 1940s, see that at that time that land was colonized by Britain, and it had been for about a century. And 
that when the state of Israel was established, a lot of European Jews had immigrated there, and many more were going to immigrate there, you know, after that point. And that is why some call it a colonizer state. But what's also true is when we just start there, we flatten out a lot of other history. It leaves a lot of things out, like that the Jewish people were there before the rise of Muslim and Arab rule and the Ottoman Empire that they were returning to the land because of persecution of them around the globe, and especially because of the Holocaust, which was, you know, six million Jews murdered for being Jewish. So others wonder, you know, how can a people with ancestral connections to the land be considered colonizers? That's not, colonizers don't have an ancestral connection. That's, you know? And, and also, how can refugees also be colonizers? Can those two things both be true? And not only refugees who arrived from Europe, which many did, but also from other places. And I'm thinking about people like Alana Zietchik's family, who in 1949, after pogroms in against Jews in Yemen, her grandparents set out on foot and on donkey, and they were brought along with 4,000 other Yemen Jews to the newly formed state of Israel. So they were Arab Jewish people fleeing oppression in their birth country, and she wonders when her family became white and colonizers, and how does that narrative reflect their their identities? Yeah, uh, as in so many things, that's that was new information for me to hear about what had happened in Yemen. I, I really did not know that happened. So just tells you the story is so big; it's hard to get all the all the truths. And I'll complicate what you say because Israel does have a well-established settlement program. Uh, people who do that, who are building settlements in Palestinian land, are settlers. Actually, that's that's the language that the Israel and American governments use to to describe these folks, and they have literally and not not metaphorically colonized these areas. So yeah. both those things live side by side. It's really and those it's settlements are illegal and under international law. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and the, the the crux of the conflict as it stands today is that, like in 1947. There was a decision by the United Nations to create a Jewish majority state in a place that was a, a Arab majority territory. Uh, and when the UN divided the, that space into two states, um, the majority of the land went to the Jews who were in the minority. And this led to the Nakba, which I just referred to, which is in the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians from the state. Um, and really what this is, is the, the crux of this is that there, there was this unworkable idea that we could create a dynamic where two groups, uh, both victimized by a, the European colonizer, were set up for perpetual conflict because of these poor decision makings, decisions made uh, with really neither of the affected parties truly at the table. So mm. we're stuck in that. Uh, and there's also just like, uh, Social media has broken our ability to have discourse, and there's so much misinformation and propaganda, and the way we converse with each other, and we've been taught to converse with each other on social media, uh, feels like we're always trying to win at all costs. It's yeah. like, you know, being right is more important than being in a relationship or creating greater understanding. Mm -hmm. well, especially when you feel helpless, convincing someone else, or like coming down hard is like a thing you can try to focus on, right? But it's not always helping the overall thing. I wanted to lift up that in a single day after the conflict began, the social media intelligence company Syabra noted that roughly one in four accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and X that were posting about the conflict appeared to be fake. So bots that were like 
on that. And then in 24 hours after the blast at Al Ali Arab Hospital, more than one in three accounts posting about it on X were. So, and that included accounts that went from, you know, posting about cricket a few times to putting 680 posts out in one day about that conflict. And so that's very suspicious kind of like bot behavior. Uh, there's a lot of propaganda that is meant to stoke outrage and division and to make us think that things are even worse than they are, and in particular to make us think that the people around us here who disagree with us are our enemies, you know, and to like really stoke that black and white thinking. Right. I mean, these, the bad faith actors like China and Russia that are doing this um, want to see us weakened by being divided. And they're actually, it's actually working. Look at Congress right now. Like, we have a essentially ineffective Congress because people have bought in so deeply to these tropes that the bots have set up for us. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, th so this, like, We've developed this mindset of war to the death, and you know the, the length and power of the conflict should tell us that the ways, the way we're thinking about this as a global community is clearly not working because the conflict is worse than ever. Uh, and there's a zero-sum mentality, I think, that like Palestine can only exist as a state if, if the state of, of Israel is, is eliminated. And Israel is only safe if Palestine is under a military occupation. And any deviance from either of those, uh, somehow benefiting one side has to cost the other side. Uh, and this binary thinking shows up in our conversations, 100%. And uh, we've had to be really intentional in our conversations to, like, to not be binary, you know? Um, like, mm. But it's this constant, like, which side is moral or immoral? Who has suffered the most? You know, the suffering Olympics. These competitions are not helpful and they don't bring us to a solution. I think they keep us in this perpetual dance with death that we're in now. Yeah. And we have to watch out for both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, anti-Semitism, uh, like quickly going to this didn't happen in a vacuum, which ignores the humanity of Israelis and Jews, you know, who were killed, uh, assigns guilt to them by identity. Um, we have to watch out for explicitly, the thing that I mentioned earlier, explicitly endorsing a, an anti-Semitic terrorist group designated that way by many countries, not just people in the U.S., because Hamas's own charter, which you can find online, their own charter, says that its explicit mission is to kill Jews, like not to work for equality or, you know, to resolve the issue, uh, but to kill Jews. And by the way, they're not friendly to women or gay or trans people either. And we've been seeing before this moment, sorry, Bob, a rise oh, in no, anti-Semitism no. in the U.S. Um, and now, especially on the far right, and I'm very concerned that now we seem to be seeing it on the far left as well. Right. Yeah, yeah it's terrifying. Um, really not happy about that. And, and the, what makes the, the, the watching for anti-Semitism in our conversation so tricky is that it's full of nuance. So you may have heard this expression, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, right? Well, one person could be saying it. They, they just want a Palestine where they have some autonomy and basic human rights, and that's all they're asking for. That asking saying that is not an anti-Semitic thing. No. Yeah. However, if you interpret Palestine will be free from the from the river to the sea as meaning, well, we need to eliminate the state of Israel. That is anti-Semitic. Yeah, and Jews. Yeah. We that is anti-Semitic. So. Same exact line, but the intention behind it has to be parsed out. 
which really complicates the conversation. Yeah. And then with Islamophobia, you know, I think if we accept the massive, horrifying death and suffering of innocent Gazans, especially children, as acceptable collateral damage, you know, if, that's, if that just rolls off the tongue, you know, like that, that, is, that is dehumanizing Palestinians, right? And Absolutely. I think that's Islamophobic. Yeah, yeah. And as someone who participated in the war on terror, I'm very cautious about how this term terrorist gets applied. The perspective really matters. You know, when the U.S. was funding uh, Afghanistan, Af 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 Afghan um, Muslims to fight a proxy war against the Soviet Union, we called them we called them freedom fighters. Remember that? And then when the exact same people picked up arms against us, like suddenly they were terrorists. So you know, who's the freedom fighter? Who's the terrorist? It's it's all in the point of view. And also, like the way Islamophobia is so baked into a lot of our media. If you watch shows like 24 or Homeland, uh, it's um, you know, Arabs are painted with a broad brush that they're all super violent and yeah. irrational, and uh, they're, they're, they're to be feared. And so it doesn't take much nowadays to to also have Islamophobia be part of the mix. Yeah, that's right. It's been there a long time. Also, yeah. 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 Okay, so. Here we are, UU pastors <laughs> of a UU congregation, which is big for UUs, but really tiny, actually, in the world, right? And I guess where I want to wrap up this message is, like, where is the holy in this? Where is God in this? Where, indeed, is the holy here? Because there's plenty that is unholy. Yeah. Um, I do think... There is holiness in the genuine heartbreak that we feel because it means that we have not yet been numbed. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're, still, we're still allowing ourselves to feel our frustration and our impotence, and uh, we still are able to recognize these great horrors, these great wrongs. As long as we have that capacity, there's still something holy in this situation from my perspective. Yeah. I see that too in the heartbreak and in the even in the anger too, mm -hmm. but what we do with it matters, right? There's a righteous anger. Um, I think also, I mean, I, I know also there's holiness in that yearning for peace, for human dignity and freedom, for for equity. Um, that that longing is a holy longing, and there is holiness whenever we do see the humanity of our neighbor, especially when it's hardest. That's right. We conjure the holy through our relationships, yeah. truly. And there is holiness in the teachings of Islam and the teachings of Judaism. There is deep holiness there available. Yeah, the, the um, teaching to love our neighbor, for example, and about compassion and mercy. And there's holiness in Unitarian Universalism, which calls us to work toward a more just and compassionate world and to deepen in our uh, right relationship with each other and to practice humility and to honor diversity. There's holiness in all of that. May it be so. May it be so. May we live into that more and more. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Bob.
Is this on? Oh, I'm on now. The world is in need of our love today. Whether you put change in the basket to benefit Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, our, our Change for the Future partner, or donate or pledge to the General Church Fund to forward our community mission of love, or give through service or in your own unique way, don't delay. Send your love in right away. Change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. It's that love's in need of love today. Before it goes too far, 
don't delay Send Josie right away What is generously given is received with gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian and the Coalition to End Violence. We have a lot of announcements. We do. We do. First off, you are invited to the Interfaith Thanksgiving service today at 3 p.m. at Congregation Albert. Join Angela and leaders of several area congregations for this beautiful tradition which we've been taking part in for years. And our trans and non-binary support and advocacy group at First Unitarian, which, by the way, if folks don't know that exists, it does exist, and it's doing great, actually. Um, they are calling on us as a community to uplift the inherent worth and dignity of every person by honoring the Transgender Day of Remembrance, which is observed tomorrow, November 20th, as, as Angela said in her prayer. So you're invited to attend a community remembrance event hosted by the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, big partner of ours, tonight at 5 p.m. at, at CNM's Smith Brasher Hall. That's College of New Mexico's Smith Brasher Hall. And you are also invited to the Miguel Espinoza Fusion concert on December 1st, uh, right here. You can get advanced tickets on the church website on the giving page. Uh, this world-class band plays a blend of flamenco, jazz, and world music, which sounds super fun. Contact Susan Peck for more information, or if you'd like to volunteer to help with the concert. And it's that time of year where we move into the holidays, and the food pantry always gets more requests for help when there's a holiday, especially Thanksgiving. So because of that, the food pantry this week is really in need of canned goods, fruits, vegetables, and soup. Fruits, vegetables, and soup in cans. They really need your help. The office will be open uh, the Monday through Wednesday this week. If you want to drop off uh, some, some of these canned goods, it would be really helpful right now. Thank you very much for that. And a heads up for families. There won't be religious education classes for children or youth next Sunday because of the holiday, but the nursery and playground will be available during the 11 o'clock service. And here's an announcement that it has a lot of importance to folks in this service. This weekend, the board of the church voted to make masks optional at this service, to make maps op optional. Folks can continue to wear masks, of course, can continue to isolate and spread out. And I want to remind folks that the, that the circulation, the HVAC system here circulates the air in the sanctuary six times in an hour, six times in an hour. So starting next week, you can... Um, it's up to you whether you want to wear a mask not here. So, All right. <laughs> not so fast, you. <laughs> um, let's, uh, is there anyone here who's here for the first or second time who feels like, like letting us know, hey, all right, we're so glad you're here. There's a welcome table out front, and, and uh, we'd love to talk to you more about it if you want. Or if you don't want to talk, that's fine, too. We love, we love introverts here, too. <laughs> 
All right. I invite everybody to rise and body your spirit for our peace greeting. One hand on your heart, other hand towards our companions on the journey here. And blessed be. And I invite you to grab that gray hymnal and open to number 399. And everyone neath a vine and fig tree shall live in peace and unafraid. And into plowshares turn their swords. Nations shall learn war no more. This text even appealed to George Washington when he retired his president. And everyone neath a vine and fig tree shall live in peace and unafraid. And everyone neath a vine and fig tree shall live in peace and unafraid. And into plowshares turn their swords, nation shall learn war no more. And into plowshares turn Thank you. 